The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Lord, I confess tonight just to um, cramming and jamming my schedule and my life so full with things that don't matter. Uh, God, that it's really hard for me to quiet my heart before you. Lord, it's really hard, hard for me sometimes to... Uh, to direct all of my thoughts and all of my feelings and all of my emotions and all of my being towards you because, God, I feel like it's just so spread everywhere. (laughs) So, Lord, in this room, I just pray that even now, God, with our eyes bowed, that you, Holy Spirit, would just begin to quiet our hearts. Lord, as we prepare to look into your holy and your perfect word, as we prepare to hear your beautiful and your glorious gospel. God, would you give us perspective? Would you give us hearts that aren't just here to be here, but hearts that long to see you? Hearts that yearn to understand more of you, God. Lord, we just pray that in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so if you guys have your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah, so crack them on open. Chapter 9. It's been a great book, fantastic book so far. Um, we, what do we have, like three or four chapters left. Um, if you are opening up, we're going to be picking it up in verse 32 of chapter 9. So, in my experience as a Christian uh, and as a pastor too, um, I've had a lot of conversations, just as I'm sure you guys have had too, uh, with non-believers, uh, people that don't believe in the gospel, people that would think of Christianity as, as wrong. Everything from um, your staunch atheist that doesn't even believe there's such thing as a God um, to um, maybe your uh, universalist who believes that there is a God but every path leads to that God to your... Um, Agnostic that believes that if there is a God, he'll reveal himself to them, uh, and so on and so forth. And in each of these conversations, it's interesting because I feel like I always come to the same four questions that they have about the Bible. And, and, and a lot of these, as we'll go over them, you guys will probably sort of resonate with. Um, the same questions always seem to come up. The same hurdles always seem to need to be jumped over in order to get to and to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ um, every single time, no matter who it is, especially in this country. Um, these questions and what we believe about these questions, as we'll get into, shape what we do in every part of our life. They shape our politics, they shape our philosophy, they shape how we raise our kids, how we love our husbands, how we love our wives, um, how we work our jobs. Everything that we do in our day-to-day life is shaped by what we think about these questions. They're huge. The answers to them are huge. So here they are. If you guys are taking notes, this is going to be sort of the... um, the structure for where we're going to go tonight. I'm going to approach the text just a little bit differently. So if you are taking notes, they'll be up on the screen as well. But here's the four questions that seem to come up time and time again. Again, you guys will probably recognize some of these. I'm sure you've heard some of them before. Um, Here they are. The first question that always comes up for me is, how can a loving God judge people and send them to hell? Anybody heard that question before? 
Yeah, okay. How can a loving God, if he's so good, if he's so benevolent, if he's so loving, if he's so awesome, how can he send people to hell? The second question is how can a just God bless the wicked? Okay, how can a just God, if he's so good, then why is there guys, you know, with these huge drug operations or guys that are selling prostitutes or guys that are doing millions of abortions and they they live in such uh, prosperity and they live in such comfort and how can that be? How can God allow that? Uh, Number three, if God is so good, why is there so much pain? Anybody heard that one before? How can God allow so much pain, so much suffering in the world if he's so good? And number four, why is Jesus the only way to God? Okay, that's the big one, right? How is it that Jesus is the only way to God? That's where our Unitarian Universalist friends would be really irritated when we say things like that, that Jesus is the only way, the one, the true way to God. Those are the big questions seemingly that come up, especially in our culture. Now, um, I, I don't claim to be any kind of apologetics expert, but what I do want to do tonight is just for all of us to challenge our minds, using Nehemiah as sort of a groundwork to do this. Each of these questions we should have an answer for, okay? If we don't have an answer for these questions, we're not thinking hard enough, and we're not looking at the gospel, because all of the answers to these questions are in the gospel. Now, all of these questions, let me say too, are things that I still think about and I still don't feel like I have fully answered. But I think it'd be beneficial tonight in the next half an hour, 40 minutes for us to go through these using the text to answer these questions and hopefully it'll shine a little bit of light on some things and encourage us tonight. So Israel in the book of Nehemiah, where we've been going 400 years before Christ is in a interesting state. They're not in their most prosperous state. They're not in their most powerful state. In fact, they're in probably one of their weakest and most frail states. Israel, who was a great nation with amazing kings like King Saul and King David and King Solomon that did mighty things, um, oh, a, a major player in, in power and politics back in that time, is now in the book of Nehemiah scattered and divided and carried out through all the ancient world. They don't even have control of their own nation, even though they're back in their city, as we've been seeing in Nehemiah, rebuilding their wall. Ultimately, they're still slaves under the king Artaxerxes, the Persian Empire, okay? So uh, so Israel is really in not their greatest hour, not their greatest day. They're in a time of weakness. They're in a time of struggle. If you guys have been with us on Wednesday nights, you remember they've just barely built the walls, They've had so much oppression, it's only by God's grace they were able to build these feeble walls. It's Jerusalem is nothing like it used to be in the time of Solomon, nothing like it used to be in the time of David. And ultimately, they're in a humble position, okay? They're in a humble position. Now, the wall is finished, as I said. What happens is Ezra pulls out the law. Now that the walls are done, they begin to read the law of God. And as they read the law of God, something begins to happen. They begin to experience conviction. They realize that they've been missing all of these things that God had given his people to do in the law, like the the Feast of Tabernacles, like we looked at a couple weeks ago. And after they read the law, they begin to repent, and they begin to give this prayer, this declaration of repentance to the Lord, where they begin to confess what Israel has done. They begin to confess how they got to this place that they are in. And what we're looking at in chapter 9 is just a snippet the last part of, uh, of that confession of repentance to the Lord, okay? So jumping in on that, 
Let's take a look and unpack these four questions. Okay, question number one, how can a loving God judge people and send them to hell? Let's take a look at our text. Now keep in mind, the only reason that I believe that Israel understands the answers to these questions at this specific point in time is because they are so humbled, because they are so weak. Just keep that in mind. Verse 32 of chapter 9 in Nehemiah says this, Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all our people since the time of the king of Assyria until this day. Verse 33. Yet you, now listen to this, yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments, your warnings that you gave them. So what Israel is saying is, what they're confessing is, what they're repenting of is that God made a contract with Israel. That contract was called the Mosaic Covenant. It was the covenant that God entered into with man on Mount Sinai when God gave on tablets of stone his commandments and his law, which represented his nature, and said, this is, the, this is how I want you to live. This is who I want you to be, to be set apart from other nations. God created that contract, and as contracts are, it takes both parties to uphold that contract. Okay, so you have God as one party and you have man as the other party. They sign the contract, it's set in stone, literally, and then you carry it out. Now, what happened? If you guys have read the Bible much, you know the story. The covenant was broken, not one time, not two times, but millions of times by Israel over and over and over and over again. This contractual agreement called the Mosaic Covenant was broken and it was broken and it was broken. Who was it broken by? Was it by God or was it by man? It was by man. Man broke his end of the contract, his end of the bargain. Therefore, justifying God to be out of that contract, okay? Now, let me ask you this. What person, if you were to enter into a contract with them, let's say you hire an employee, or let's say you, 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 you sign some sort of a business agreement with somebody, uh, or, or let's say you, you get married, you have a contractual agreement of marriage, and then that person that you go into that contract with cheats breaks the rules of the contract, lies about the rules of the contract, abuses you within the contract, mocks you while breaking the contract, shows no repentance, shows no sorrow for that, what would you be justified in doing? You would be justified in washing your hands completely of that contract, walking away from that person that you entered into the contract with. Am I right? Okay. By our own standards in this country, and as humans, anyone would say that, yes, you are justified in walking away from that contract. Israel is saying that God was justified in walking away from the contract, but did he? No, he did not. 
Did God walk away from Israel, even though he was justified in doing so? No, he did not. He pursued Israel even through their failures, even through their shortcomings, which is incredible. And what Israel is saying here, look at verse 33, yet you have been righteous. Look at verse 22, it says, who keeps covenants and steadfast love? They're acknowledging in their state of humility and repentance that God has been the one that has kept the contract and they have been the one that has not. So the correct question here should not be how can a loving God judge people and send some to hell, okay? The correct question if we're seeing clearly, should be how can God save anyone? (laughs) How can God send anyone to anywhere but hell when everyone deserves hell, all of us? You say, well, I wasn't in the Mosaic Covenant. Okay, your father represented you, Adam. He failed. You say, well, that's not fair, I wasn't there. You would have done it too. He did what you would do. How do I know that? Because you did it. (laughs) You do it every day. How do I know that? Because I do it every day, okay? All of us, none of us deserve heaven. Absolutely none of us. Romans chapter three, just to cement this in, verse 10, as it is written, Paul says, none are righteous, not even one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open sepulcher, a grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Who is Paul talking about? He's talking about mankind. He's talking about our original sin, the sin that we are born into and that we choose, that we are by nature and by choice. The question is not how can God send people to hell, it's how in the world can God send anyone to heaven, okay? How can God, now our culture has a really hard time with that. I can say that to you guys because most of you are probably Christians and you would say, yeah, that's right. If I said that to a room, a room full of non-Christians, that would be extremely upsetting. It would be extremely upsetting. First of all, because we don't believe in original sin in this country. We believe that we are, by nature, good people. That if you are bad, or if you do bad things, it's simply because someone did bad things to you. So you can blame it all on your parents and get counseling, and you're good, right? It's my mom's fault, man. She didn't love me enough. My dad didn't tell me good job enough. So I can basically do whatever I want. Here's two basic reasons, okay? Two primary reasons why our culture has such a hard time answering this question, why this is like the insurmountable hurdle for people to jump over to get to Jesus. Two reasons why in our Western culture this is so hard. Number one, if you're taking notes, it's so hard for our Western culture because we make ourselves the judge and we put God in the stand. We are the judge and we will judge God, whether he is righteous or he is not righteous. I don't know if you guys have noticed, if you've checked the news, but everything that we're doing in our, in our country right now is based off of whatever we feel like is right. It's not based off of anything other than what we feel like seems correct. 
what we feel like seems okay. Okay, I just found out that not that long ago in Oregon, they passed a law saying that 15-year-olds now can go get sex changes without their parents' consent, without their parents' knowledge, and the government will pay for it. Only in Oregon. Okay, I don't say that to get into politics, but I say, how do you get to the point where you think that's okay? How do you get to the point where you think that your 15-year-old can go get an abortion and you don't know about it? How do you get to that point? You get to that point when you have no anchor of truth, when everything that you believe is based off of whatever you think seems or feels or should be in your head right, okay? That's how you get to that point. And in our culture, in humanity, ultimately, we put God on trial and we say whatever we think is right is right, and whatever God is is for us to decide. It's kind of like the color blue, right? I, I mean, we think the color blue is blue, but how do we really know it's blue? I mean, blue could be green, you know? I mean, who told us that blue was blue? Who decided that blue was blue? Someone could come in and say, yeah, I, think that, I, I know that you think blue is blue, but I really think it's green. And how far can we trace that back to decide who's right, okay? You can't. You're going to go in circles. There has to be truth from outside of the argument. If there isn't truth from outside of the argument, we go in circles. And that's exactly what we do, right? It's exactly what we do. The liberals, the evangelicals, the conservatives, we go in circles because there's no source of outside truth saying, actually, no, this is what it is. So we run in circles and circles because we have put ourselves in the place of God. Let me ask you, who gave us the concept of right and wrong? Have you ever thought about that? Someone would say, it doesn't seem right that God would send people to hell. Where did you get that idea of right? <laughs> who told you that? Who, who, who made you in such a way that you had any small, fallen, twisted even inclination of whether something was right or wrong? God did. Do you think God would make you, give you what's right or wrong, and then say, yeah, you decide if I'm right or wrong? No, he is who he is and whoever he is is right because he says it, <laughs> okay, because he says it. He is the definition of right because he's given us the definition of right. Does that make sense? God decides what truth is, not man, therefore we do not judge him. Romans nine twenty says this, but you, I'm sorry, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will that which is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? The author has the power to decide all things. Who are we to question that? In Job, God speaks up to Job, one of my favorite passages, when Job is questioning the Lord, and he says this, he says, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me, God says. He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have any understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know, Job. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, who shut in the sea with the doors when it burst out from the womb? And he goes on and he goes on and Job just sinks <laughs> when he realizes how little he knows. That he wasn't there when God created the heavens and the earth. That he doesn't understand 
that he will never understand, that he could spend eternity exploring the vastness of God and never fully have the wisdom and knowledge that God has because he's eternal, because you cannot understand all of God. Isn't that cool? Listen, guys, we were designed, okay? We were designed to discover truth, not to determine it. Okay? For someone to sit in the place of God and say, I will decide whether there is a God. For someone to sit in the place of God and say, I will decide who that God is and what that God is, is not for man to do. Yeah, someone could say, well, isn't that the Bible? I mean, wasn't the Bible written by man? That's really where the rub is, right? But what is this? Is this man or is this man discovering God? Okay? What is archaeology? It's man digging something up out of the ground and discovering something that already existed. What is music? It's putting notes together that were already there. What is science? It's finding out things that were already in place. What is math? It's finding out numbers that already existed and discovering that. And it's exactly what theology is. It's discovering God, revealed by God, for who he is. It's not for us to decide. It's for us to discover who he is. Satan is a master deceiver, and man is very easily deceived. And all it takes is one little tweak, and we're in left field. Our theology has to start with the understanding that only God is righteous. And my dad told me something so cool one time. And my dad and I were built similar. We're both question askers. And then we just, we, we like to think about things and, and, and try to figure things out. And, and my dad used to just get frustrated reading the Bible because he, he would just have so many questions. And then, and then he said he realized something at one point as a believer that he, he was looking at all the questions trying to find a flaw and then it switched to where I just trust and know that God is perfect and now instead of finding questions to find a flaw with God, I find questions and realize there is answers because God is perfect. When you read the Bible and understand with the premise that God is perfect and righteous and there are answers to all the questions, we cannot possibly understand all of them. It just changes everything. So the question should not be, is God righteous? It should be, listen, is there a God? And if there is, what do I do about it? (laughs) That should be the question. I mean, why are we spending so much time in our culture thinking about whether God is good or God is bad? The question is, is there a God? If there is, for crying out loud, what do we do about it? If there is a God, who is it and what do we do about it? Those are the questions we should be asking. It seems obvious that there is. The second reason that our culture, now this, this point's the longest one, don't worry, the other ones are shorter. Uh, the second reason our culture has such a hard time with this is that we're a self-obsessed culture. We don't like the idea that there is a sovereign or a deity out there that has control over us. We don't like that idea. We don't like that at all because we're self-obsessed. We like to be the star of our movie. We like to be Bruce Willis. In our movie, we like to be Russell Crowe and Gladiator. We, everything is centered around us. We're the star. We're the point. Everything's about us. And that's just realistically not true, is it? Any of you that have lived more than 20 years probably are realizing that at this point. Life is not about you. It does not revolve around you. I have two kids now. I definitely know life does not revolve around me. That's for sure. Tim Keller points out in his book, uh, Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. If you guys want to, it takes three hours to read that book. It's super good. Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Uh, he points out that this is the first time in history that he knows of that we see bloating someone's self-esteem as helpful for their life. 
For, for centuries, we just called that pride. <laughs> it was a bad thing. Thinking that you're something greater than you are was always something that was thought of as a bad thing. If I think I can jump, you know, 500 feet on a cliff, that's just obviously a dumb thing to think because I'm going to fall. I mean, that's just always been common sense. Don't bloat your self-esteem. Don't think you're better than you are. That's just foolishness. We live in a culture now where everyone thinks we need to bloat our kids' self-esteem. We need to make them think they're extremely important and they're better than they are. And that's why everyone gets on American Idol and Simon tells them that they're horrible, right? Um, because we're obsessed with bloating self-esteem. We all think that it's all about us. Now, what does the Bible say about that? What does the Bible say about individuality and being special and everything's just about you? The Bible doesn't say anything. It basically says you're in two groups. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. Okay, that's it. It's being part of something bigger than yourself. Non-believers in our culture especially have an extremely hard time with this question because it forces them to give up the control that they want in their life. To say that there is a God out there that will judge and there is a God that they have to answer to and that requires faith of them and belief from them is terrifying. Now, why should this fact be important for us to know? Why should the answer to this question be important for us to know? Just quickly, because we should be resting in the fact that he loved us from the beginning. We should be resting in the fact that Jesus has a special love for his bride. Now, I love you guys, okay? I do. But I don't love you anywhere close or anywhere near to the way that I love my bride. I have a special and a specific love for her that is for no one else. Now, would anyone in their right mind say that's a bad thing? No. So why would we say that it's a bad thing that God loves his church so much that he would die for his bride? He has a special and a unique love for us. We should enjoy that. We should love that. We should think about that. Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Second question. How can a just God bless the wicked? How can a just God Bless the wicked. Go and throw that one up there, Anthony. Now, look at the text, verse 35, and we'll find the answer to this one. Even in their own kingdom, verse 35 says, and amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their works. Okay, what are they saying? They're saying, as they're confessing, as they're repenting of their um, rebellion against God, they're pointing attention to the fact that God blessed Israel, that God was so faithful to Israel, that he gave them abundantly, time and time again. And guess what? Not just when they were good. He did it when they were rebellious. He did it when they were defiant. He did it when they were in the face of God, worshiping idols. Yes, he judged them and dealt with them like you would any kid, at the same time, he blessed them in times where they did not deserve it. For most of Israel's history, they didn't. In fact, for all of their history, they didn't. And now, in a humble and a repentant state, they're saying they realize that. They get that. They did not deserve it. Now, to answer this question, how can a just God bless the wicked? Where did we get this mindset in our culture that 
thinks that good people should get good things and bad people should get bad things. Where did that come from? I mean, why are we so obsessed with deciding who is good and who is bad? Um, well, first of all, because we're created in the image of God. So we have sort of reflections and remnants of justice that are ingrained in us because we're created in the image of God. But Satan has twisted that and changed that. The reality is, we are asking, again, the wrong question. You can't ask, how can a just God bless the wicked? Because, as you learned from the prior point, we are all wicked. We're all wicked. When someone, when you, when you talk to a non-believer and they say, well, it just doesn't seem fair that God blesses the wicked, you say, well, who's the wicked? Who is that? Who, who, what definition are you working by to which to decide who deserves blessing and who doesn't? Because if we're going by the biblical perspective, if we're going by God's perspective, we are all wicked. <laughs> we are all undeserving of blessing. So is it any more unfair that the guy running hundreds of thousands of coke up and down the coast, living in a mansion with tons of money, is blessed, and you and I get to go home to a nice car and a nice house? It's all unfair. None of us deserve any of it. We all deserve nothing. The breath I just took was undeserved. The water I just got to drink is undeserved. The company I'm sharing with you right now is undeserved. The church we get to come to is undeserved. All of it is undeserved. None of us should be blessed. It's only by God's grace and God's favor that any of us take the next breath we're about to take. It's called common grace. We all experience it. Is God not good that even those that fly in the face of his grace and reject it and want nothing to do with him still get to enjoy this life? What a good God. How faithful and patient and gracious is he? Isn't it ironic that one of the biggest hang-ups, how can a just God bless the wicked, is the very heart and one of the most beautiful facets of the gospel. What was Jesus doing on the cross? He blessed the wicked. When he died for you and he died for me, when he took the wrath of God, the weight of the sin that you and I produce and produced and will produce, he was blessing the wicked, those that did not deserve it. It's the beauty of the gospel. It's an amazing thing. As Christians, we get to see that as his perfect love because perfect love is love that requires nothing. Perfect love is love that asks for nothing, and perfect love is love that gets nothing. Am I right? I mean, I love my wife, but I get a lot back from her. She's a blessing to me. She makes my life better. I love my kids, and they're a blast. I love to be with them and, and to hang out with them and to play with them and to stay up all night with them. Um, <laughs> uh, but ultimately, I get back from them. Does God get anything back from us? Does he have any benefit Ultimately, it's all so that his perfect love can be manifest, can be set on display because we are in no way deserving of it. 1 John 4.10, and this love, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Did you catch that? Did you zone out for that? I'm gonna read that again. In this is love that we, not, sorry, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That question right there is a perfect lead into the gospel. How could God bless the wicked? That's exactly what he did in the gospel. 
and you're the wicked, and so am I, and we're saved because of that. That's good news. Now, if we don't get this, two things happen. If we don't get this, number one, we're no longer loving towards those that are in sin because we see them as on a different playing field, okay? We get angry at the homosexual movement. We get angry, not, not, I'm not talking about the righteous anger of I don't want this to affect our families and our kids, but I'm talking about I get angry at homosexuals because they're homosexuals rather than saying, man, that guy's struggling with something just like I am. He just doesn't have grace in his life to work through it. He doesn't have a Holy Spirit in his life beginning to work through these things. So we love that, those people struggling with that. We love people struggling with all of these different things. We love the guys hopping over the border into our country, okay? We love them with the gospel because we should see us in them. Well, they don't deserve it. Well, we don't deserve it. None of us deserve it. That's the beauty of it. If we don't get this, then we will treat the world like lepers and they will not hear the gospel. We have to love them. We have to see them as us. We have to see them as just as fallen and just as far from God as we are. And secondly, if we don't get this, we'll begin to store up bitterness against God for our position. God, I was good. God, I did good things. I tithed this month. Why do I not make enough? Why can't I not pay my bills? Why is this going on? Why am I dealing with this illness? Why is my kid disobeying and being rebellious? Why, is my, why am I losing my job? Why do I have cancer? Whatever it is, you're gonna see that as unfairness on God's part. Why? Because you think you deserve something. That's the very root of all of discontentment. Why is my life not going the way I want it? Because you think you deserve it to? What do we deserve? We don't deserve anything. We deserve hell and torment forever. And we get everything for free because Jesus paid for it. It's good news. Number three. If God is so good, why is there so much pain and suffering? If God is so good, why is there so much pain and suffering? Look at Nehemiah. Verse 36, chapter 9. It says, Behold, we are slaves this day. And the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruits, its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. What is Israel saying here? Are they saying, we are slaves and all of the fruit of our labor goes to King Artaxerxes and the Persian Empire because you're so unfair. That's not what they're saying. They're saying we're slaves and all of our possessions are going to King Artaxerxes because, look at it, of our sins. The reason that question hangs up, everyone, is because people are not ready to share in their weight of the sin of this world. Because people are not ready to say, yeah, the reason this world is this way is because of us. Again, you say, well, what are you talking about? I'm not over there doing ethnic cleansing in Africa. I'm not, I'm not over there... Uh, doing injustice in some of these countries. I'm not over part of ISIS beheading people and doing crazy things. I'm just over here trying to be a normal person, you could say, right? The reality is, and, and you just look back at your own life, is that almost every pain that you experience 
is caused by another human. The wars that we see, the holocaust that we see, the constant pain that we have to watch every night on the news and realize that people are going through, almost all of it is because of man's sinfulness and selfishness, because man is choosing man over God every time. Well, what about all the other stuff? What about natural disasters? That is all a result of another sin, Adam's sin, that started off the world into a chain of decay as the world is now cursed. It all is because of sin. If God is so good, why is there so much pain? Because we are here. Why is there so much suffering? Because of you and me. It's our fault. So in order for God to deal with the pain, he needs to deal with us. He needs to deal with the problem, the issue, and that is us. So to that person that says that and to brings up that question, like, do you really want God to deal with the pain? Do you really want God to deal with the suffering? Because I know what the issue and the root of that is, and it may not be what you actually want. It's only by God's grace that he hasn't dealt with the pain because we are the cause of the pain. We are the cause of the sin and the struggle. God will judge all things, make no mistake. He will. Every pain will be paid for, either on the back of Christ or by the person who committed it. Because God is just and he is holy, but he's also patient, right? He's patient. Lastly, and we'll close with this, why is Jesus the only way? Okay, this is the big one. This is the one that everyone really hates, that Christians would say there's one way to God, and that's Jesus. How can you say that? That's so closed-minded. That's so uninclusive, right? It's so intolerant to say that only people that believe in Jesus can get to heaven. How can you say that? Well, we have good reasons for saying that, don't we? We have very good reasons for saying that, for claiming that. I mean, it'd be easier, wouldn't it, to just say, yeah, Gandhi, Whatever, you know, yeah, let's, Allah, he's cool, you know, he's just a different view of God and whatever, you know. It'd be easy to say that. It would be really easy to just be all-inclusive and say anything will lead to God. If you want to go, you know, do yoga every day and and, and eat corn nuts, then that'll get you to God, you know, whatever. I don't know, corn nuts and yoga. Um, You should try it. It won't get you to God. This is the question, and and why do we say, how can we say Jesus is the only way? Well, look at verse 38, we'll conclude here. Verse 38 of chapter nine. After all this confession and repentance of what they just said, all this stuff that we've done, and they're open about it, and they're honest about it, here's their solution, okay? Here's their idea. Here's how we're gonna fix all the problems we've had for the last 1,200 years. Here it is, verse 38. Because of all this, We what? Make a firm covenant in writing. Seriously? Is that going to fix it? You're going to write on some paper and you think that's going to fix the issue after issue after issue that continually binds man and keeps him from being with God, the sin that is plagued and at the very root of all of our hearts, you think signing a declaration is gonna fix that? I don't, I don't blame them, that's all they know. That's all they knew. Like, well, we'll do what Moses did. We'll sign a declaration. We'll, we'll make it official. We'll sign it. And, and then here's what they say. They even say, we'll have all of our leaders sign it too. We'll have the princes and, and the Levites and the priests and we'll seal it and it'll be official and everything will be good. 
Okay, now it's the exact same thing that someone who's caught in a works-based religion who's trying to earn his way to heaven is saying. This will work. We'll just keep trying it. Hasn't got us there yet, but we're just going to keep trying it. We're going we're to keep working at it. Maybe this religion, maybe that religion, maybe this philosophy, maybe that theology, maybe that, whatever it is. Let's try it. The world's tried every approach to get to God. Everything possible to get to God. But what did Jesus say on the cross? He said, if there be any other way. Was there? Was there any other way? Jesus was not a wimp. He cried out in the garden as he sweat drops of blood in fear of what was coming, the wrath of God about to pummel him. And he said, God, if there's any other way besides through me, and there wasn't. There's only one way for man to be reunited to God, and that is through what Jesus did that next day. It's only through what he did on the cross. Why? Because determination won't do it. Because being really serious about God won't cut it. Signing a declaration, framing it, putting it in your house won't do it. Electing the right leaders won't do it. Getting the right president in office won't do it. None of it's going to fix it. None of it's going to do it because the issues are so deep. We need to be reborn. Our sins not only need to be paid for, but they need to, we need to have a new life given to us. Jesus didn't just take our sin. He gave us his perfection. God needed to enter into a contract not with man, but with himself. That's what he did on the cross. So I can't enter into a contract with you guys. You're going to blow it again. So I will enter into contract with myself, and I will give it to you so that my grace and my mercy and my love will be put on display for all of eternity for you, my bride, to see and to worship me for. Is that good news? Can't be a contract. Can't. It doesn't matter how official it is. Man cannot lead man. I don't care who we elect to be president. We need Jesus. We need him on the throne. He needs to be here, ruling and reigning his kingdom. It's the only way it's ever going to work. Guys, we have to understand the answers to these questions. Okay? These are scary questions. These are the questions that when they come up and you're talking to your unsafe friends, they make you squirm. They make me squirm because I'm like, oh, that's a tough question. But if you notice, the answer to every question is that God is perfect and God is righteous. And Jesus is God and therefore I trust him. Okay? I don't have all the answers, but I know who does and I trust him because he's perfect and he's loving and I'm not. And that's for sure. You don't have to argue that with them. Talk all day long about how much we suck. They'll agree with you. <laughs> That'll set you up perfectly to tell them how amazing God is. We cannot hope to understand the true answers of any of life's vast and innumerable questions until we first answer these questions in our heart and we trust him for who he is. Amen? Let's stand on up.